but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, bienvenue, bienvenidos a la body surf. I'm Jonathan. <laughs> uh, okay. You did not see that coming, did no, you? No, no. <laughs> this is the mid-Australian Open episode, and this tournament has given so many looks. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I have to say, I wasn't, it took me a little while to get geared up for this. The first few days were like, okay, it's happening most of the time while I'm sleeping, but it, it has really picked up for me. I was worried that the Annie Murray retirement announcement would uh, would really put a damper on the proceedings, but time marches on. In, ten in Grand Slam tennis especially, so many things happen during the first week that those day one news bits are almost hard to remember. That wasn't even day one. That was a couple days or the mm -hmm. day before the tournament, and then he played right away. And so you're right, we thought that there was going to be this gloom and doom hanging over the event. And it was the unhappy slam for a day or two. Again, for the <laughs> second year in a row. And then stuff started to happen. So let's start with the Andy Murray stuff and get that out of the way, okay? So we talked about on the previous episode how Andy made it seem like this could be the last match that we would see him play. Mm -hmm. And it still may very well be the case. He played Roberto Bautista Agut in the first round, and he lost in five sets. But it went quite differently than a lot of people expected it to. He lost the first two sets, stormed back, and was able to win set three and four. And it was actually a match. It wasn't a swan song. It wasn't this hobbled old player sort of bowing out of the game quietly. He was there, and he could have won. Well, I don't think it was a storming back and I also do think it was a hobbled player. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it wasn't like, okay, this guy's just going out to, to say his goodbyes. No. It wasn't that. After the match, they're interviewing him on court, and they have this little video vignette prepared with the, the big three, the other members of the big four, that's not Andy, mm. wishing him farewell and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And Andy's kind of like, well, damn, I'm not even sure if I'm done playing yet. This is a little bit premature. <laughs> Like, I'm not dead yet. And so the two options that he told us regarding his hip and his future, he was either going to take the next few months off and then maybe play Wimbledon as his absolute final match, or he could go and have another more extensive invasive hip surgery pretty soon after this event and then rehab for however long that takes and see what happens. Right. He's been speaking with Bob Bryan, who had this hip resurfacing surgery last year in August, was back practicing in December, says, you know, it's still not at 100%, but he was able to get on court in December just to see how it felt. The pain is basically gone, but Bob conceded that for a singles player, it is possible that he would lose that first step, that explosiveness that is necessary to compete on Andy's level, mm -hmm. since his game is predicated so much on fitness and speed and reaction. And for what it's worth, Bob and Mike Bryan are in the quarterfinals of the doubles. They've come back and picked up right where they left off. Mm -hmm. So 
Bob said he hasn't told Andy, yes, you should do this. But he's kind of spelled out, you know, here's what it is. Here's what the surgery's like. This is what I feel now. Obviously, you can make whatever decision works for you. So in the coming weeks, Andy is expected to decide to get the surgery or to continue training to bow out at Wimbledon. And uh, the way he's talking, it looks like he's leaning toward surgery. Well, not necessarily continue training, but or pre- preserve himself. Right. With with a goal at playing a few matches at Wimbledon. And the tea leaves that I'm reading, Bob Bryan is kind of saying, well, he thinks it's potentially possible. And from hearing Andy talk, even when he was having that tear-filled press conference before the tournament, even if he took the option to have the hip resurfacing, it seemed that even he had in the back of his mind that he would at least see where it is and try and give it a go if possible. Right. And so that coupled with Andy's reaction on court after the match gives the impression that that Andy's holding out hope. That said, Judy Murray told us that he couldn't even fly the next day when he mm. wanted to because he was in so much pain. Right, right. And that he could barely walk. So let's let's remember that at the core of this, this is a quality of life issue for Andy going forward. Mm-hmm. On to the tennis. Let's start with the... We're going to dive into like the, the matches and, and a lot of the upsets that have happened in the first week. But we'll do what's most fresh in our mind's eye, coming off of last night's massive win for Stefanos Tsitsipas over Roger Federer. There are so many cliches at the ready to describe this match and, and what it means going forward for tennis. I am going to dispense with those and just say Tsitsipas beat Federer in four sets for entertaining sets in which he finished 68 points at the net. Both players played a lot of serve and volley. He hit 20 aces. It was a performance that was composed and exciting. It was just not, not a huge, huge shock to me. I thought that Tsitsipas could really pull this off even though Federer had looked quite good through the tournament so far especially on serve. That breakpoint bugaboo for Federer reared its ugly oh, head God. again. Oh, God. Zero of 12 breakpoints. That's just not going to cut it. And, you know, you ha- you talk about these cliches. Chief among them, from what I've been seeing, is the comparisons in the actual game between these two. Mm. And I, I, I see that, but I also see a few differences in that Stefanos is very hyper on court. He's always moving. <laughs> yes. Not only is he always moving and fidgeting, he's always itching to move forward as well. Right. He cannot sit still on a tennis court or stand still, I should say. And the actual playing of the shots, they're less compact and less clean than Federer's, especially on the backhand side. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see Tsitsipas hit a lot of these one-handed backhands and you're like, how is that ball going in? Because it sounds like a shank, it kind of looks like a shank, but he's got, in the end, a lot of topspin that's able to kind of push Federer back a little bit. Right. Federer is the two-time defending champion of this event, but judging by the way he's played over the past few months, I'd say since Cincinnati, it's not, it's not like shock of the century, right? I expected him to get further. I wouldn't have been surprised at all to see him in the final here, but here we are. Is it a changing of the guard? No. I, I think that's lazy journalism. I think it's it's relying on cliches that are just tired. Um, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have all lost to some next-gen players 
that could be considered, you know, the next wave, the the generation that's going to replace them. But they're still here. And guess what? Tsitsipas still has three more matches to win if he's to win this title. Mm -hmm. That is a huge ask. He'd have to get through giant killer Bautista Agut in the next round. We'll Mm -hmm. get to him later on. And then potentially the winner of Nadal Tiafo, and then having to deal with the other half of the draw, which has Nole, Raonic, all these other guys. Nishikori, possibly. So it's still a bit early. This was a huge stepping stone, nonetheless, for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kid obviously feels a lot of self-confidence, self-belief in his game, and it showed. Speaking of belief, American Francis Tiafo is having a similar kind of coming out moment at this tournament. And he's somebody who has been discounted, I feel, over and over and overlooked pretty consistently by both American commentators and just, you know, ATP observers at large. Let's be real here. When you're looking for the next gen of of top talent, oftentimes you look to the guys that are aesthetically pleasing in mm-hmm. their games. Mm-hmm. And Francis Tiafo is not that. He has a, a weird game. Yeah. A weird I've, game. I've seen people describe it as like DIY strokes. You know, the forehand especially looks strange. You watch the take back of his forehand and you don't quite know how to process that before the ball is even struck. Mm-hmm. Like the ball is struck and you're still kind of focused on the take back. <laughs> if but, you're watching him for the first time, it's 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 a different way of playing tennis that I think excluded him from a lot of avenues as far as projecting the next best. Mm-hmm. I think people took the way his game looked and then projected onto him that he would not be able to take it far enough to mm-hmm. be, you know, a top talent. Whereas I feel like in the past year or so, what has held him back is not actually his technique. He has beaten top players and he's been close to beating a lot more. It's that he gets nervous. Mm-hmm. This is a point that Chad C.C. Smooth made to us privately. Yeah. That, and Chad, we're going to... Tell, say your thoughts here just for a little bit. Sorry about that. Uh, that, you know, folks just kind of wrote him off as not being good enough without really paying attention to what was going on. He was having big wins. He was pushing big name players. But when it came to the nitty gritty of the match, wasn't able to hold it together and push through. And I mean, bless him because after how he was roasted at the Hotman Cup for his, let's let's be frank, atrocious performance. <laughs> He's then able to come to Melbourne and string together four straight wins now against top, top opponents. He took out my tournament pick, Kevin Anderson, yeah, in the quite second early round. in the yeah. second round. And you, you have to think that Francis did see a little of what people were saying after the Hopman Cup. It couldn't have escaped him. But he came out of that event feeling positive, feeling like I got to play alongside Serena across the net from Federer that it was an enriching experience rather than feeling down on himself and has now been able to produce this. You know, he went on to beat Seppi in five sets in the next round. And then, of course, last night, we witnessed him, a a very, very tired TFO, taking out Grigor Dimitrov, who wasn't actually playing that badly. Just playing the big points badly, unfortunately for him. But playing a lot of points really, really well. (laughs) He won more points than Tiafo, yeah. even though it was a four-set match. That's a strange stat there, because for a match to go that long, I mean, you can expect that in five sets, if a couple of the sets have been uneven, you know, that the points will even out toward the end, and it's possible you could win more mm-hmm. and lose. 
But I find that strange in a four set match. Right. To have one more points than you've lost, even and especially given that none of the sets were blowouts. Francis looked wiped in in the third set. He saw the trainer a few times, uh, was kind of pulling on his his arm, and Grigor pulled out that third set. And I definitely thought that Grigor's athleticism was going to take him through the win in five sets. I, I was really pleasantly surprised that Francis was able to do that with, uh, as you said, kind of a second wind in the fourth set. Imagine Stephanie Graf having <laughs> Grigor in her house for a full month over the holiday season having to drag her ass down to Australia. She doesn't often travel to these events anymore to be with Andre, who is in Grigor's box as his coach, mm. and have a fourth round exit like this. I'm just saying, <laughs> you spare know, a thought for Stephanie. You know that late in the fourth set, she gathered up her purse and she hightailed it out of there. She did not wait till the end of that match. Well, we don't even know if she was there. Do you know if she was there? I wasn't I don't. paying attention. I assume she's probably over the Pacific somewhere as we speak. <laughs> the parallel that I want to draw here, and it's a... An uplifting parallel is to Tennis Sandgren. Because last year, we he was the American male player who was making it to the quarterfinals. And he was the one who was like, oh my god, we've got this guy, this American guy. We can finally root be- and co- mm. go behind. And then he was exposed. Right? We saw right. that in real time. This time around, we have an actual feel-good story. Right, and observe how a player can just exist and not be cancelled if they're not problematic. Mm-hmm. It- <laughs> you know, he didn't just win a few matches and then people went and took him down. Because, to our knowledge, they ain't nothing to take down. <laughs> right. You know, he's out here being supportive of women's tennis, supportive of black women, <laughs> not talking out his ass. Mm. Like, you can be unproblematic and burgeoning. It's possible. Right. Uh, some haters are a little upset about his LeBron-inspired celebrations and taking off his shirt and pounding his biceps and stuff. And man, like, black people having fun, it consistently gets people upset. A quick note on Tennis Sandgren. He gained some points after winning in the first week of the tournament, Mm -hmm. his first ATP title, and then he lost even more points this week. So, uh... (laughs) It'll yes. keep him around longer. So but... you almost, because you almost jinxed it, right? Because you predicted that he would become irrelevant yes. and then won a title about uh-huh. three seconds after you said that. But Mr. Nishioka, and we remember his name, mm-hmm. he did the business. We mentioned this in the first episode, remember my name. He did what had to be done. We have American women doing extremely well at this tournament as well. That's another one of the big stories from the first right. week. Five American women made the fourth round. Serena, of course, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, and then we have Danielle Collins. Wild story. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh huh. And also Amanda Anisimova, who, I mean, I, we know that she's somebody to watch as a future big time player, but her performance in taking out Arena Sabalenko was. Not to be cliche, because we hear people say this when it's not necessarily warranted. We were both with our jaws on the floor Mm -hmm. watching that match. So, American woman, big up to y'all. And there's also Sonia Kennan, who made the second round and gave Simona Halep such a hard time. 
you watch Sonya play that match, and you're like, well, like there are riches coming up the pipeline right. for the American Absolutely. woman. Absolutely. Because five U.S. women in the round of 16 is not news at all. What's news is that we have a few new names in Collins and Anisimova. Kennan took it to Halep. Sasha Vickery made the second round. There are many, many American women waiting in the wings. And this is even without Venus in the round of 16. Mm-hmm. Venus made the third round and lost to Simona Halep. She started off against Buzarnescu, was a game away from losing. Buzarnescu served for the served for the match at 5-3, and then Venus kind of sped away with the match after that, found something that was missing. And then in her second match, she played Alizé Cornet, which had all the makings of madness surrounding <laughs> it. And we got a few moments. Uh, Venus won the first set in that one, lost the second, and then bageled her in the third set. Mm-hmm. You get the sense that Venus relishes beating Alizé. Somebody pointed out on Twitter that a few years back, Cornet had beaten Serena and said, well, something to the effect of, well, uh, I'm looking forward to playing her, but I've already beaten the better sister or something like yes. that. And then, of course, Venus went and whooped her ass the next round. And according to the caption, made her cry. Well, I don't know all about that. <laughs> I'm not wading into those waters. Before we continue, a quick word about Venus and her game. The, again, positive signs positive sets in there amongst the eight that she played it was always going to be a tough ask for her to put to beat Simona Halep right we knew this uh there's at this point there's just for a player like Simona not a whole lot that Venus can do to trouble her and for me it starts with the serve and I wasn't able to fully pinpoint this until I was listening to that match with Casey Delacqua and another guy calling it and while I had been wondering why it is that Venus's serve isn't as effective as it should be, you know, this is for me as somebody who is not technically inclined as far as tennis analysis. Like, we know this. Mm. If, you're, if you've been listening to the show, you know that technical analysis is not our bag, right? And it was explained to us that she could possibly help herself by moving a little bit closer to the T before she served. Because in effect... She's really cutting down, she's losing a few inches of the box where her ball could go, and it makes her serve predictable. Even when she's hitting big booming aces, like a couple of times she hit a big serve out to Simona's forehand, but it was right in her wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And so when you, with somebody who is still able, we saw her hit serves over 120 miles an hour at this tournament, she still got a lot of pop on her serve in her game. It then becomes a point of, managing that power and making it more effective. And I think it starts with the serve with her. In that sense, the issue was that her serves down the tee were not close enough to the center line. So on the deuce side, especially, you're serving right into Simona's backhand. Mm -hmm. Simona's returns were consistently very, very deep, keeping Venus in the back of the court. And if Venus is back there, I don't know that there's a whole lot that she's going to do with Simona on the baseline. Not at least not enough to win, to to stay with her, but not enough to overtake her. She created opportunities on Simona's serve. Mm-hmm. And we know this, that Venus is always going to have opportunities in matches. But when you're playing somebody like Simona, who is such a great returner and is able to hang with anything you throw at her on the baseline, then it, it builds so much pressure on your own serve. And Venus, unfortunately, while I still think she played fairly well in this match, mm. The net effect of that is that her game didn't really trouble Simona 
like it, it needed to for right. her to win. And you could right. see, like, Simona's body language is very out in the open when she's playing matches. Mm -hmm. And you saw her throughout that entire match not being bothered on court. And if she were, she'd let you know. <laughs> right. That said, still taking positives from this tournament and Auckland for Venus. Still eager, still looking good in a lot of parts. Uh, hopefully she can get some more matches. And my goal for her, <laughs> I mean, to stay healthy, sure. But I would love to see title number 50 at some point this year. I know you've been wanting to debut this hashtag that you coined the other day. I did. I really hope it takes off. If we ever get into merchandising, this will be a t-shirt, mm -hmm. a hoodie. So on the subject of young players breaking out yes. in droves in this tournament, mm -hmm. Anisimova, TFO, Kennan, uh, Alexei Popirin from Australia. Collins, even though well, she's not, not super as young. young. Yeah. But there have been a notable number of breakouts. Mm-hmm. Well, the ATP has next gen. That's their branding, their hashtag or whatever. And after the Anisimova match where she beat Sabalenka, I was thinking that, you know, wow, you have all these established Grand Slam winners out here who are still trying to add to their tallies. Yet at every tournament, it seems, there's another young player hatching. Mm -hmm. And and so the hashtag is hatching and snatching. <laughs> It's fitting, especially in the Anisimova-Sabalenka context, because Anisimova put in a performance that was very Sabalenka-esque recently. And it was remarkable because you see a lot of these young players just play balls to the wall, pardon the expression, for a set, maybe. Just overpower their opponent, like Camila Georgi does a lot. And we've talked about she's become able to string sets together better. But... It was very unexpected to me that Anisimova would continue that level through both sets. That that nerves didn't did not enter the equation at all for her. That's the snatching part. She did what Sabalenka is supposed to do. She snatched the wig of the wig snatcher. <laughs> right? Sabalenka has beaten basically every top woman player in the past year. And this to me is the pitfall of picking someone to win a major who has never won a major, because these things happen. An 11 seed losing in that round is not that shocking in the WTA, but because she was so hyped up as absolutely the next thing, that she will win a Grand Slam sooner than later, it was very surprising to people. And especially the manner in which she lost, she looked uh, she looked stumped. Anisimova, for her part, her game looked so complete. Mm -hmm. There was nothing that she couldn't do on that court. And to see someone like Sabalenka, who's able to for the most part, blow people off the court at will. For her to be so stumped by Anisimova right, in this match right. was something to behold. So you wonder if maybe our estimation was just a little bit different, that, you know, that Sabalenka is actually still developing, still has to learn different ways to get out of these kinds of matches. And that comes with experience, because all-out power is, is not going to do it all the time. Let's get to some of the upsets that have happened. The first couple of days, especially on the women's side, went very much according to seeding. Mm -hmm. There were so few early round upsets. And then we started to have a couple big ones uh, strewn in eventually. One of the big ones that happened first was Donna Vekic going out to Kimberly Burrell. Right, who is not the gospel singer, Kim Burrell, but an <laughs> <That's>, Australian player. <laughs> that's Burrell, not Burrell. <laughs> With a U, yes. 
We mentioned Stefano Tsitsipas, he beat Federer. Tiafo beats Anderson. Daniel Collins took out Yulia Gerges in the first round. That was that was a big one. Yeah. So Gerges is looking better and better as Collins moves on and beats even better players. Yeah. <laughs> and beat like beats them down badly. Collins then goes on to last night beat Angelique Kerber in the beatdown of the tournament. Oh my Mercy. lord. Just an absolute slaughter. Six love, six two. Angie was not able to do what Angie does. She was totally outclassed on the baseline. It was just all out aggression. Daniel Collins' backhand is the truth. Let's just say that because, wow. Popperin, he beats Dominic Team. Team seemed to be a bit injured in that match. Eventually had to retire in the third set, down two sets. Pavlyuchenkova is into her fifth career slam quarterfinal, and she went through Kiki Burton's on her path to get there, as well as last night, taking down Sloane Stevens. <laughs> a rematch of their contentious matchup at the U.S. Open, in which Sloane accused Pavs of gamesmanship, of taking medical timeouts when she wasn't even injured. <laughs> <laughs> I think folks are a little bit surprised whenever Pavlichenkova pops up like this. You know, but she is actually but somebody with pedigree. She's been out here. You know, she's been making second weeks of slams for near 10 years, right? It's not just that she's been out here. She's been underachieving. Really, that's yes. the truth of yes, it. Yes, for her talent level. And so now she's got an opportunity with Danielle Collins coming up in the quarterfinal to make a first slam semifinal. Speaking of Miss Collins, let's have a word. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to say about this woman. It's, she okay she's causing all the conversation right. with her game on court in her on court interviews in her press conferences there is a lot to dislike and there is actually a lot to like <laughs> she's a very polarizing player mm -hmm. right now collins went to four years of college graduated from university of virginia in uh, actually what i do has a degree in media studies she won two national titles, 2014-2016. She was a serious baller in college tennis, the best. She gets to WTA, has some uh, shocking wins. Like, beating Venus last year, it was in Miami, right? She beat Venus in the Miami quarterfinals last year, made it to the semifinals. She had a good Indian Wells-Miami stretch, I think. Right. I, I mean, she bossed Venus. And I remember being mad. <laughs> and just thinking like, oh, wow, like this girl just goaded while she was playing Venus. And it turns out it's clearly not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say uh, <laughs> it seems like more than lightning in a bottle here. Okay. The woman clearly knows how to compete. She has an abundance of self-belief. That, which that is much is her for cup, sure. During this tournament, her cup runneth over. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she said the first thing she said in her on-court interview is, I had never won a Grand Slam match before this, and I think I'm going to keep going. I think she said, y'all better get used to it, because <laughs> I'm going to be winning more. Right. But the way, watching the way that she beat Kerber, I'm thinking like, okay, so who's going to beat her? Show me. Like, someone's got to show me that they can stop her, or she's got to have an off day. Tennis is a game of matchups. Mm -hmm. She yes. lost what eight games or nine games to Sasha Vicker in the second in the second round. So like things change from day to day. Right. She is partially coached 
by Pat Harrison, father <laughs> of Ryan and Christian. Mm-hmm. Do with that what you will. Yeah. Uh, we, we knew that uh, from press that had been done about her with her runs that she made last spring. And we got confirmation that they're still working together because she shouted out her coaching team on court after winning last night mm. and said no to the two guys in her box and then Pat at home. So we know Pat's still around. We don't know if there's stuff to be extrapolated further with that because her connection to him is through the IMG Academy. Collins is repped by IMG and uh, Harrison is a coach for the IMG Academy. So whether it becomes Mm -hmm. a more personal relationship beyond that, who knows? But interestingly, on tennis Twitter, while this was happening, a lot of folks are saying, like, we need to know, is this a MAGA person or not? Because (laughs) she's giving me serious MAGA vibes. Right. She's giving me Colleen vibes. And there's a parallel to be made there with her and and Vanderway's run to the semifinals in 2017. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, you begin to learn more about the connection with the Harrisons or whatever. Who knows? This is something to keep an eye on. I don't think we can make definitive judgments just yet. Right. I think out of context, her sort of jockish and competitive, what she calls feisty attitude is not something that's uh, immediately offensive to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that she gets motivation from that. Uh, it shows that she really, really wants to be here. She wants to win. And I think generally that's a good thing. This is a competitive sport. Um, of course, people are annoyed because in context, certain people are not given the leeway to to be that way, mm-hmm. right? To act that way. And there's also the jarring bits where you drop shot Kerber, you're already up six love, what, two all or whatever, uh-huh. and then you scream in her face. I, I mean... <laughs> Because Kerber has to run toward the net to, well, not retrieve this drop shot. And Collins screams, come on, like right in her face. I think Pam Shriver said that it could be her middle name. (laughs) And the commentators say things like, you know, this girl played in college and that's a very college tennis mentality. It's all intensity Mm. all the time. Mary Jo Fernandez dropped in. She can be obnoxious at times i was like oh wow oh whoa because you don't often hear american commentators criticize u.s players like that mm-hmm. which leads me especially to believe, white ones well it also leads me to believe that she's a little bit isolated from the tennis establishment right that's what that says to me mm-hmm. and there's stuff behind the scenes that we don't know about because you've got a white girl here a white woman here who is having the time of her life and for the american media to not be just dropping dead over her <laughs> it, it, like what's going it on raises here? a little bit of a red flag for me mm-hmm. so let's keep an eye out on that i will say that she seems a little bit crazy <laughs> that's <laughs> like he, jonathan that's, that's very not, bad that's not nice that's very bad but you watch her press conferences and she will just start cracking herself up mm. in a fit of laughter that just escalates into this crescendo <laughs> That's just like, is this October 31st? Like, I don't understand what's going on. I watched one of those clips like 15 times and just really had a ball. Yeah, it's funny. You know, so like there's, there are layers here. We'll see the way this shakes out. Mm. (laughs) That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. So Serena Williams, we haven't really mentioned her yet. She's been looking tough in the first three, three rounds. She lost only nine games so far. She's had a positive ratio of winners and errors in each match. Comfortably. Yeah. Bouchard was expected to be a bit of a test early on. Jeannie has been playing better. I know people push back at that. 
but she has been playing better than she has in a, in a long, long mm-hmm. time. She won a doubles title, only her second title at tour level on either singers, singles and doubles. And she seems confident. And Serena was able to pretty much deal with that. Listen, two and two. Of the three matches that she's played against Tatiana Maria, Jeannie Bouchard, and then in the third round against Yastremska, Bouchard was the one who gave her the biggest test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Easily. And I maintain that the scoreline 6-2-6-2 does not really do justice to the effort that Jeannie put forward. And maybe this is a bit self-serving because I said that Bouchard (laughs) was going to have a breakout season, a comeback season. But she went out there and was not cowed by the situation. Playing Serena at night, she was there to go toe-to-toe with her. They were hitting the cover off Mm. the ball. And there were a lot of rallies that Jeannie was able to stay in. The serve... Obviously, it's going to be a, a a net negative for her, especially against somebody like Serena, who is one of the greatest returners ever, and is going to put pressure on your budget second serve <laughs> at every turn. Mm-hmm. You know, so you got the pressure on the serve, pressure on the ground. She was being pegged back the entire match, and still, I think gave a good account of herself. That's all I'm going right. to say. I mean, Jeannie has been here before. She's played late in majors. She's played every top player out there. She beat Serena in Hopman Cup. I mean, it's not a real tournament, but she has faced Serena before in a competitive environment. Yastremska is someone who is very young, who doesn't have that Grand Slam experience. I was a little bit, you know, I'm always nervous before Serena matches. I was thinking Yastremska is somebody who could go on a tear like she did uh in the fall, winning a tournament. I can't remember which one now. But she has a lot of power. But Serena is not typically troubled by power. No. It's when there's a little bit more nuance in the game to be able to mix the power with spins and angles. That's when stuff can get a little bit trickier Mm -hmm. for her. And so that leads us to her fourth round match where it could get tricky for her with Simona Howell. Right, of course. So that is tonight. It may uh, it may have already happened by the time this reaches you. I have no prediction whatsoever. This is such a wild card match to me. Either one winning wouldn't be surprising. Serena leads the head to head 8 8 and 1, I think. The the one loss coming to Simona at the World Tour finals in straight sets. A few days later, Serena beat her very, very easily. So in the past, the matchup is not something that's been tricky for Serena. Post uh, coming back from having Olympia, I think Serena is still not at optimum speed. I think she's in she's in really good shape, but she is not as quick as she once was. And also, like she's thirty seven, so that's that's that. That could just be the state of her affairs going forward, and right. she's still right a formidable force. Mm-hmm. Where she's also playing Simona for the first time as Grand Slam champion and long time at this point, world number one on the WTA tour. So Simona has a lot more heft to her personality and persona as a WTA kingpin. <laughs> yes. Right now. Versus the last time exactly. that she played Serena. So this is a, a different dynamic to bring to this match. Simona, it seemed like she might have been carrying an injury in her second round match. She was strapped in her third round match against Venus. Didn't really show any effects of that. So I assume that both women will bring, you know, close to 100% fitness to this match. And it should be a crackerjack, Mm. really. 
But let's get into this draw. What what is left? So before we get into the the, the matchups that are left, we've got one half of both draws that are into the quarterfinals, and then we still have some round of 16 matches to play. At this point, we entered the tournament with what, 11 women able to become number one? We're down to five. And so Which the, is still a pretty big number. It is. <laughs> the fact that are left Simona, Petra, Naomi, Svitolina, and Pliskova. If you had to put money on it at this point, Petra Kvitova could become world number one for the first time in her career, which is kind of crazy. It seems overdue. With, uh, with the relative ease of her draw compared to the top half, I think Petra is the most likely, in my opinion. That said, that's exactly the type of scenario that will cause her downfall when, you know, more eyes are on her and she's expected to do better. Well, listen, I picked Petra to go out in the first round because of her recent performance in majors. We'll see how that shakes out. <laughs> what are some of the matches that you're looking forward to in this second week? Well, Osaka Sevastova is tonight. I think it's at 7 Eastern, so this will be moot by then. I'm really looking forward to that. They have been pretty evenly matched in their career so far. Keys Fidelina is not one that I'm particularly looking forward to for aesthetic reasons, but it is a rematch of their very entertaining match at the 2017 U.S. Open. Muguruza Pliskova, I was surprised to learn that Pliskova leads that head-to-head 7-2. to two. Oh. Pliskova hasn't had a, a smooth run of it so far, but she's there. She's gotten through it. She got through a tricky Camilla Georgie, and uh, she's got number one in her sights as well, as well as a first Grand Slam title. Petra dispatched Amanda Anisimova quite easily. Petra's won all her matches in straight sets so far, and has seemed pretty untroubled. She will face Ash Barty, who had an amazing match against Sharapova. I thought <laughs> Barty could have given up that match at the last minute. You were a, a negative Nancy. I was a nervous that wreck. whole thing. Because Ash goes up double break in the fourth set, and here comes Sharapova. Uh, here comes the narrative yep. about being the greatest fighter ever. And, you know, you get these comments from Cliff about, oh, you know, this is very important because... If, if Sharapova breaks here and it's it's 4-1, then it's just a stone's throw away from her running through the rest of the set. <laughs> and Ash, obviously, in that situation is going to display some nerves, and she did. But Sharapova could not solve the riddle of that Ash Barty backhand slice. Right. I felt this was a real breakthrough win for Barty because there were many, many opportunities for her to get nervous and throw it away. Because Sharapova would have snatched it if given the opportunity. How Sharapova went from playing lights out in the first set to whatever happened up until midway in right. the third set was astonishing. To to start the second set, it was an utter collapse by Sharapova. But late in third, Ash found a way. She played a good enough service game, hit an ace, service winner, bam, it was over. A relatively undramatic at the very end. And so she'll get a rematch of the Sydney final with Petra Kvitova. What's different for me about Ash Barty right now is the obvious belief that she's showing on court. We thought last year when she played Naomi Osaka early in this tournament that this was going to be a showcase for the future of women's tennis. And Ash, up until winning Zhuhai, I think at the end of the year, you know, kind of had spurts throughout the rest of the season, but she hadn't really announced herself as a would-be top player, I think we're at that moment. She's at the cusp. And mm. uh, man, if she were if she were able to get through Kvitova, 
presumably on rod laver in front of the Vegemite army on home soil, <laughs> this would be a huge win for her. Amazing, especially since Petra leads their head to head three to nothing, has beaten her on three different surfaces. What else on the woman's side are you looking forward to? Well, the only other one we didn't mention was Pavlyuchenkova Collins is the other quarterfinal. These are these are just tip top matchups on the women's side. A lot of the top seeds are still there. We have Grand Slam champions facing off. It, it's a real like a real win for this tournament, I think. On the men's side, RBA has had a hell of a start to the season. Can we talk about that? Let's, because RBA has not lost a match in 2019. In his first tournament, beating world number one Djokovic, Stan Marinka. This tournament, uh, talk about like a, a range of emotions and athletic challenges, right? Andy Murray, John Millman. Then has to face down the number 10 seed in the third round, Karen Hachinov, who is coming in hot from last year, and then takes out the number 6 seed, Marin Cilic, yesterday. Big upset. I think whenever you see Cilic and Federer in the same quarter, that's the one that folks are looking forward to right. at this right. point. Roberto, that win against Milman said a lot for his resolve. Coming off the win against Murray and having to deal with the emotions, him being the one, right? Having that big win to start the year, and then first off, you have to deal with the Murray saga, the retirement Murray saga, and being the one to potentially put him into retirement. That is not a fun scenario to have to deal with, especially since RBA himself is coming off a very emotional 2018 season and trying to get his career back uh, to where it was. Three of his four matches so far have gone five sets. This guy is in tremendous shape. He'll face Stefanos Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals. The two have never played. Stefanos has had a relatively short career on the ATP, hasn't played that many matches. Uh, So I will be curious. I think that RBA could see this through. This is where a lot of the younger players might have a little bit of difficulty going forward. And I want to, in this instance, pinpoint the Nadal-Tiafo match. Because on the face of it, Tiafo could give Nadal fits. Truly. Mm-hmm. He has lots of weapons, big power. But I always come back to when someone's playing someone like Nadal for the first time and has to feel what his ball feels like on the opposite side of the net. That's something that takes a lot of getting used to. And you just can't really afford to spot Nadal a set and a break. Like mm-hmm. Berdick did. And he's had oodles of experience against Nadal. <laughs> Maybe too much, actually. Yeah, so on the bottom half, you have two matchups where the players have never met before. On the top half, we're still in the round of 16. Djokovic, Medvedev. Medvedev is certainly not cowed by this situation, says that he can be the one to take out Djokovic. And I think if you are in this position, you should be talking like that. He's also talking stuff like he doesn't think that Djokovic is playing like he used to (laughs) kind of stuff, which is... I think... think The way he used to is a little bit cruel. Djokovic is not at 100% right now, but we know that Djokovic at 80% can beat everybody. Medvedev is clearly comfortable with being the villain of the ATP. Right. And if he wants to take that role, you you put up or you shut up. That's that's the position he's in right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. A a kind of a low-key matchup here. Karenio Busta against Nishikori. Nishikori has played two five-set matches. His first two matches went five sets. 
kind of unnecessarily, to be frank. <laughs> yes, that is true. Uh, I saw Carreño Busta and I wrote, oh, really? I kind of forgot that he was still around. He beat Fabio Fognini in the third round. Maybe the biggest matchup left in the men's draw, Alex Verb against Milos Raonic. Raonic and RBA have both, to my mind, have the toughest, have had the toughest draws so far. Yeah. Raonic got through Kyrgios, and then in his second match, he took out Vavrinka, and he's playing well. But Milos's talent and ability has never been in question. It's about whether or not he's healthy enough. And it seems like he's put a few numbers into the, the Milos calculator and come out with some logarithms to steer him back on course mm-hmm. for this event. And I would not be surprised to see him come out of that half at this point, given the way that he's played. Because to get to this point, he's beaten top opponents and not had to spend that much time on court, which is huge for him. Right. And he also, let's not discount, has had great results in Australia before. Borna Chorich will face Luca Pui in another battle of the babes. He also faced off against Fucevic, which was a little anticlimactic because Fucevic's kit was so ugly. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to be flippant. These are, you know, these are grown men at the top of their craft and we need to respect it, Jonathan. Excuse me? Don't objectify them. Oh my God. (laughs) Men have been objectified enough. I mean, you should have seen the way he stormed upstairs. (laughs) After the first changeover, disgusted by the fit of George's kit and the hideous colors of Fucevic's. It was disappointing. Are we prepared to make any predictions? No. None? No. Our predictions on the last episode were so hideously wrong. I'm not doing that again. Listen, I said that Pui was going to have a terrible year. And look, he's in the the round of 16. Mm. I clearly discounted the fact that he now has Amelie Moresmo in his camp. Right. And I was short-sighted. And a buffoon. <laughs> so moving on, we're going to do a whole bunch of etceteras to finish the show. The first one being Rafa Nadal's new serve and how good he's been playing through four rounds. Yeah, the Burditch match especially was was the real kicker to me because you and I both expected that to be extremely tough because of Burditch's form coming in. They have a long history uh, I mean, Rafa has owned him for the most part, but does have four losses over 23 matches mm-hmm. going into last night. The three losses at the start of their rivalry was, like, I think Burdick was 3-1 and one after their first four matches. Mm-hmm. And then the only loss in the last, what, 14 years or so is the one at the Australian Open. Right, it was that's, during a severe slump in Nadal's career. That said... Burdick is coming back from an extended break and was clearly in top form, having made the final in Doha and then taken out Cal Edmund easily in the first round. He was on a mm-hmm. run. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed that potentially there was trouble on the horizon. Not to be. Bagel first I- set, 6-1 second set. He was able to find his game a bit in the third set, took it to a tie break, and then Rafa won. Right. Tomas just looked dumbfounded throughout most of the match. Rafa serve. I I know that there are small differences, but I'm having trouble identifying them, to be honest. Rafa does not want to talk about it anymore. He does not. <laughs> After his match, Jim Courier tried to get him to show us on court 
what the differences were and he was like uh no like, no nur? i punched out about 30 seconds ago I'm like, <laughs> he's like i'm not gonna embarrass myself like that on court <laughs> sloan stevens giving us a hoot of an interview in press about her family's mortician business i want to know everything about sloan stevens life in the funeral home she says, yeah, it's pretty cool. A lot of dead bodies. She says, I, I like the embalming. I like looking at the bodies. <laughs> I like the bodies, the cremation. <laughs> and I'm thinking, first of all, who let you down there? To uh, Did you actually embalm somebody? Uh, you... Don't you need a license for that? <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my yes, mind. Yes, you know, a, a family business, everybody's got to pitch in. I, is there going to be an investigation now, is my question. <laughs> I just like when Sloane lets her guard down and lets us see the human side of Sloane. She can be so guarded with the press. Which is her want and her right. I'm of, not going to hold it, it against her at this is. point. But Sloane Sloan has a great personality. And she, she buttons it up a lot. Serena's romper. Her emerald green romper. When she took, up, took off her warm-up jacket during that first match, the crowd erupted. People were pumped. I mean, I saw it for the first time. I was like, oh my God. It wasn't a parade of booze? Right. The Aussie bros on Twitter told us that Serena was going to be booed hardcore when she comes to the Australian Open because of what happened at the US Open. It wasn't the case. The Aussie crowd was pumped to see her. That romper is, it is a look. She continues to give you bold as fuck fashion choices. She continues to give you body. Yes. It seems to be a mission for her, along with, you know, having practical purposes as far as blood circulation and whatever. Because mm -hmm. you know, she's wearing like fishnet uh, compression garments. Which she says she may have to wear for the rest of her career. You know, there's a practical component to her kits. But there's also what seems to be a concerted effort to showcase what she's got. <laughs> and she was asked about that if she was trying to make a statement about confidence in her body. And she said... We designed this months and months ago with Nike. Uh, it is what it is. This is what I wanted to wear. But she's not somebody who's going to put those thoughts into words very often. She kind of lets her body of work speak for itself. And her body speak for itself. Right. right. I mean, to say that she didn't make a specific decision to showcase for this particular outfit. To me, I read that more as well. Um, this is just who I am. Right. You know, it's not specific for this time. It's specific for every time, you know? <laughs> right. And there, it, as always, it's a polarizing outfit. There are a lot of folks who did not like it. Mm. And that's fine. You don't got to like it. The green color is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It is such a beautiful color. Like, as long as stuff's not, like, spilling out and being obscene, like, what's the what's the big deal? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> right. Just because y'all couldn't wear it, that's all I'm going to say. Nothing further. I certainly couldn't wear it. <laughs> You really like this Nike black and white kit that uh, Garcia, Sabalenka, Keys, a bunch of them have iterations of the same mm. Nike kit. Well, there's certain folks for which it works better than others, as mm -hmm. is the case universally. Right. Uh, but my, I'm coming from the perspective of you know how much I love a classic black and white kit. And Nike's accentuated with pops of color here. Like, I am living for it. There's certain iterations that are terrible. Sloan Stevens <laughs> was not good. But her there was were not good. but there were good bits. There to were it, there were right? the colors were but it lovely. Didn't fit. No, I didn't like it. I'm not going to make excuses <laughs> here, but we're not criticizing anyone's body no. or the way that they wear clothes. I just thought the top was basic. 
actually thought that the top the colors were beautiful yeah I, i'm the yeah. colors i love i'm talking about like the cut of the top yeah and simona is wearing a similar one uh bouchard had another nike top that was a little bit different but all of them have this uh this sort of what do they call it like gathered bottom mm-hmm. um that you could like tie up you know like the scrunchy look that's the, the like when we were we were in elementary school girls would like wrap up the side of their t-shirt with a scrunchie yeah that's the crew neck crop top one yeah yeah yeah. that's Spitalina and bouchard mm. were wearing that one is my least favorite of right so depending on how you wear it it can look very ill-fitting and bunchy at the waistline mm. now bouchard she wears her kind of like a catholic schoolgirl walking back home who's going to put it back to normal before her mom sees it she just left <laughs> the baby one more time video set. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> gregor dimitrov looked great in his classic beautiful like that's the way that kit works best vika looked great in hers you know like there's Mm. there's a lot for me to like about that even the adidas stuff i thought that mogurutha looks good it's kind of like simple and kind of (laughs) tie-dye in the look of it but i i liked it 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 worked i guess simple works better for me there are a lot more um like jewel tones Mm -hmm. versus neon neon is usually the look at the australian can we talk about Rafa's sleeveless top? Finally. Finally, they've done it right. After all these years. They tried it at last year's Australian Open, and the colors were just not good. It was, the colors this, were the least no, of it. This, it like, was the fit. It very was the pale fit, pink. Fit, it was just ugly. Fit. No, man. It was like the thin uh, shoulder straps. Uh, the, the armholes were so wide. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like you were wearing a loose tank top to the beach. Yeah. That's not athletic gear. Like you have a, for all intents and purposes, a man, an athlete with the best biceps that there've ever been, and you find a way to drown <laughs> them in this hideous sleeveless yeah. top. Yeah. Now they've found the perfect way to frame it, and and Rafa wears sleeveless in practice all the time. Yeah, and it looks good. In this year, two thousand nineteen, men are wearing things that are more tailored, shorter, tighter. This is the way it needed to be. So kudos, finally. On a more somber note. I just said how Vika mm. looked great in her outfit. She was unable to win her first round match, was up a set and a break, eventually losing. She gave uh, a shocker of a press c- conference. It was really upsetting. Like it was it was just genuinely difficult to watch. She said the word struggle so many times. And but you observe a woman who is at a place in her life and her game that she's not happy with and she seems a bit like, I don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. Like, things are working in practice. They're not working in matches. Obviously, there are serious things going on in her personal life, the half of which haven't been told. And she said a few times, I don't want you to think this is the worst thing in the world. Like, I've I've been through hard things before. I'm going to get through this. But right now, where we're at at the moment, it's tough. And that sort of emotional honesty can be shocking because you don't often get it in press conferences. For a while, she was fighting for her tennis career, as well as custody of her son, right? Mm. She was trying to have that outlet, that release. And tennis, I imagine, was supposed to be the balancing part of this. Right. You know, to be the thing that was going to offset all the personal turmoil and make life more bearable. Mm. And where she's at now, it seems, is the struggle is also real on the tennis court. And that must make it doubly dispiriting for her. And you can't watch that and not just be gutted for Vika. It was 
oh, I mean, with the Andy press conference and then Vika's press conference very early on, it, it like we said, it, it set the tone for what we thought was going to be a very moribund Australian Open. One of the big picture issues from the first week, we had hoped that the coaching thing, the Serena thing, the US Open thing was going to be uh, put by the wayside. Clearly not going to happen. We knew it wouldn't. Yes, we knew that. Uh, and But it's it's taken a bit of a different turn than we expected in the first week. Because this coaching thing is not going away. And the reason it's not going away is folks out here on social media are detectives. They're watching all these matches and are there at the ready to point out all the ways in which these double standards exist. And it's able to frame the U.S. Open incident in a different light, in a more full, broader light, Mm -hmm. shall we say. When there's one side of an argument that's framing this as these are the rules brought down from the mountain by Moses and all tennis players need to follow them. When that's one side of the argument, it's going to be a project and almost an amusement to tear that down, Mm -hmm. to say that these rules are not enforced consistently and we would argue further that they are almost never enforced yeah like probably 95 percent of the time that is what we're witnessing right so this is what we're seeing almost gleefully right before the u.s open when you and i left cincinnati we did i don't know a good 10 minutes about how on-court coaching uh non-sanctioned mid-match coaching is absolutely rampant in tennis players are having full-on conversations with their coaches and the umpire either does not see in a lot of cases they can't see or it's not worth it for them to enforce then the u.s open happens so people who have been observing tennis for a long time know this to be true so during simona's match with kennan you see her looking to her box someone in her box talking to her and she's talking back i mean like this is a real conversation here I saw this and thought, how could anybody, like, what could be the argument against this? Because I know it's coming. Because I know the the partisans will come up with a rationalization for for anyone. Apparently, the rationale is that it wasn't her coach. And I, I just don't, I don't see how that's relevant. Apparently, I don't know who that guy is. But it's not a fan. Like, it's not a random person in the, mm. in the crowd, right? You kept telling me this, that, you know, there's this mm. argument to support Simona in this instance and you're like haven't you seen it it's everywhere <laughs> I'm like actually no because I just don't I didn't give it any credence or paid any mind because it's so patently absurd hmm. you know it's like how how could this be a defense like well it's not her coach well is she getting coaching <laughs> by somebody else in the back I don't understand and this is also uh the the limitations of say forcing a coach to sit elsewhere because there could be someone else in the box giving the same same kind of coaching yeah, right that's a good point and so for me we're at this place where i don't really care about coaching that much i i don't want it to be allowed but if it's not allowed then you have to enforce it period like it either is a rule or it's not i don't see because a lot of it is out of the umpire's view is it enforceable? I don't even think it's a matter of the umpire exercising discretion. I think it's simply missed. What's the solution to have a, a ball person, a lines person in the player <laughs> box 
And then like you <laughs> right. smack them upside right. the head if they do. Like you, you remove the know. coach, fine. But then the parents are going to be there. Oftentimes, the parents are the one who were there, were the first coach in these players' careers. Right. So, right. you know, it's not an easy thing to fix. But the, what I keep coming back to is the short-sightedness of these rules are rules people. Because did you really think that when that U.S. Open thing happened and you you come at us and you say, oh, well, the rules are rules. She broke the rules. What did you think was going to happen in 2019? Like, we have been out here watching tennis, watching players breaking rules. Yeah. That's what happens. Rules are not consistently enforced. And so now every single match, essentially, we're seeing instances where rules that you claim are rules that you applied heavy-handedly to Serena are being broken wantonly in the same way Mm -hmm. or in adjacent ways all throughout the grounds in practically every match by the world number one who is getting coaching from her mother, from her coach, having full-on conversations, right? (laughs) Full-on conversations. when, When players consider challenging a call, they practically like conduct a poll yeah, of their box. They do. This is across the board. We're not talking about Simona here. And so when you come at it from the rules are rules perspective, we're now at a place now where we we know that the rules aren't just rules. That was easily disprovable. At the time at the US Open, we knew that they were disprovable. And you should have had the foresight with that argument, if you know anything about tennis, to be able to see this storm coming. And, you know, let this storm whip you up into a tornado and blow you elsewhere. Because, like, that is some tired, trite shit, really, <laughs> at this point. In a similar vein, people were pointing at Yulia Putin-Seva's behavior. I mean, over the past several years. Mm-hmm. But the latest incident was her giving the middle finger to the crowd as she left after her loss to Bencic. Tennis Twitter celebrates Putin save his behavior a lot, find her very amusing. It's a joke, right? Like we said with Collins being feisty, certain players are given leeway to be that way and other players are not. I'm not even going there, but I cannot imagine Serena Williams flipping off a crowd. You just went there. No, but uh, there was more. Okay. <laughs> the fallout would be different. That's of course. Just a fact. And she's a top player that's different. It doesn't matter if it was Simona, if it was Kerber. They don't behave that way. But the fact that Putin Seva's deplorable on-court persona is simply amusing, it's going to rub people the wrong way. You just have to have to be ready for that. What's going to rub people the wrong way? The fact that it's considered funny. No, but it doesn't. It doesn't rub people the wrong way. That's the issue. That's a double standard. Oh, well, people it rubs do me the not. Wrong way. Find, yeah, say that. But it <laughs> right. clearly does not rub people the wrong way because for as long as I've been. In this game, people have been just chomping at the bit to watch Putin Seva and just waiting for the next fucker to happen. Right, right. And this is many steps too far. And this is another instance where that double standard of appropriate, acceptable behavior has been misapplied and selectively applied. Mm. And so you cannot then say that Serena needs to do that and has to be that at this time, all times, when you do not apply those rules to other people. Right. And it's not enough to say that, well, Putin Seva is just ranked 40. She's not a top player. She's not of the same pedigree. We do not expect the same. No. If you come at me with rules are rules, the rules are rules. You don't get to be rules are rules in your favor and then not have it be the other way around. And also Wozniacki blasting the ball into the crowd. Which is 
is a, that separate according to the rule book a clear code violation is it called every time no it wasn't and like, it was not called right but serena's racket smash was called and in the sequence of having been given the caution warning before it then had added consequences and so you're gonna say well the rules were rules then the umpire applied the rules by the letter of the law but this time the umpire used discretion which is okay like which which was the correct which is answer. correct which is the better way <laughs> Because I, you, it just is unfathomable that you can get to a point where you have a Grand Slam final and something like that happens and it's all at the feet of Serena Williams because it's just not. I think what you're saying is that it's very hard to be the police. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying every last minute of okay, it. Okay, I don't want to talk about this anymore and preferably never again. A lot has been happening behind the scenes again with the ATP Players Council and the board and the supposed push to remove Chris Kermode. The uh, the Players Council members have been largely mum on the subject. We're going to save most of this for our wrap-up because there may be some more stuff coming out. The vote on the Players Council has been officially moved to the meeting at Indian Wells in March, though. We wanted to finish up with a moment of levity. There's a new tennis couple, an A-list tennis couple out there. A-list? Wow. I'm just asking, is it A-list or not? <laughs> It is, yeah. Okay. And who is it? Alina Svitolina and Gael Monfils. There, uh, there have that, been rumors and speculations about this for a little while. We got confirmation there this have? week. Yeah, people have been talking about wow, it. Wow, this totally escaped me. It, it was a surprising match. Is it? Gael likes his white woman. He does? He does. I don't know. I don't know who he's dated. Oh, okay. They have a joint Instagram account that's called Gems Life. <laughs> G.E.M.M. S dot life and it's alternating their first and last initials. Mm -hmm. Gal, Elena, Morphis, Svitolina. It's at first, when the first few videos came out, I was like, you know, I can get behind this. It was actually pretty cute. One shot of, of Gal coming up the escalator, and then you realize there's a twin escalator on the other side, and here comes Svitolina, and they're both <laughs> in the shot. It was kind of cute, but it's been a bit much m.u.c.h.life <laughs> get used to it is it more annoying than kiki and dami yeah because at least you have to go looking for that like it's not it's often just like a comment on a picture it's not mm. full-on video shoots like movie sets and stuff like we're not seeing soon we're going to be getting videos of them clipping each other's toenails Ew. like it's going <laughs> to escalate to be fair you didn't have to follow them it doesn't matter if I follow them. That stuff is all over my timeline. <laughs> On that note, we're going to get to watching the actual tennis. Thanks for listening. I realize we didn't introduce ourselves at the beginning of the episode. You probably know us by now. But if this is your first time, I am James. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ElliotJMR. That is Jonathan. That. <laughs> I'm a that now. We also want to give a shout out to Colouis. C-O-L-U-I-S, on uh, who gave us an iTunes review and ended it by saying, keep it up and mention me on the podcast or else. Oh, ooh, so I'm scared of you. Since we are <laughs> uh, scared of the what else, we will say thank you, <laughs> sir or madame, for the kind words. And I hope you're having a much warmer time, which you are in Puerto Rico than we are right mm -hmm. now because it's... It's frigid. It is five degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius, but it's really cold. Thanks for listening.
Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.